0: Most people remember Thomas Edison for inventing the phonograph and in the incandescent light bulb, but did you know he also played a role in inventing the motion picture? It's the origins of the film industry, today on Footnoting History. Hello, 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 and welcome to Footnoting History. My name is Nathan. You know, uh, sometimes I think we forget just how integral film is in our lives. Uh, Movies, and their child, television, have for the last 120 years completely revolutionized global culture. Uh, Film has become the medium by which we think about, discuss, change, argue, and construct our world. We measure our lives by how much they compare to the narratives we see on movies and television. And whether we mean to or not, many of us alter our behavior, our norms, our goals, and our mores in response to the visual stimulus of cinema and television. The story of how film emerged as a medium is therefore an important one. It's also a messy and complicated one, sometimes without a clear defined narrative. But such is often the case in the history of technology. In fact, much of the history we see being played out in our own time with regards to the internet, the development of new technologies, the social demands which give rise to them, and that they in turn affect the struggle of the economic market to readjust itself to the new systems, uh, the political conflicts over regulation and governmental oversight. These are all, in one way or another, issues that were present a century ago in the emergence of the film industry. Before we dive into the messy narrative, it's useful for us to think for a moment about what film is and how it works. At its heart, film exploits two quirks in human physiology, the persistence of vision and the phi phenomenon. Remember that moving pictures aren't actually moving, but rather a series of still images, usually around 24 pictures or frames per second. In a traditional movie projector, a single image is exposed for a fraction of a second, after which it is covered by a shutter while the roll of film advances one frame. The shutter is then moved, and the next image is displayed, and then the process is repeated. It's been known since antiquity that the human eye retains a very brief afterimage of whatever it sees when the image is removed, uh, or in the case of film, when the shutter is placed over the image. This is called persistence of vision, and as long as the shutter does not remain in place for more than about a sixteenth of a second, we don't see it. Now, if the image changes slightly between the two frames, our brains automatically fill the gap between the two in something known as the phi phenomenon. And this is how individual still pictures presented in rapid sequence appear to be moving. It's your brain filling in the gaps. In the 19th century, uh, there will be a profusion of toys and sort of novelty devices that operate on these two principles. Uh, The most famous of these is the zoetrope, which is a kind of miniature carousel, I guess you could call it, with uh, pictures painted on the interior surface. And the user looks through a row of slits in the top of the carousel down at the pictures. Uh, And as the device spins, the picture seems to move. You know what, I'll put a picture on the website, it's kind of hard to explain. I say it's useful to think about what film is, because when you do, you realize that there's a lot of technological innovation and inventions that had to come together in order to make the emergence of cinema possible. The oldest of these is the idea of projection, which, I mean, has arguably been around since the first time a human made a shadow puppet with their hands. Certainly the idea of the camera obscura, the projection of an image through a pinhole into a dark chamber, uh, and so the image appears inverted on the wall, uh, was known in ancient China since the 6th century BC. I would go even so far as to argue that maybe uh, medieval stained glass was a kind of projection, because it required a background light source, sunlight, in order to be viewed. But most histories of film like to begin in the 17th century, with the development of the magic lantern by the Dutch physicist uh, Kustian Huygens, though some people prefer to give credit to a German cleric named uh, Athanasius Kirche. Either way, the magic lantern operates by taking an image painted on a glass sheet, uh, backlit by an oil lamp or a candle, and projecting it through a magnifying and focusing lens onto a sheet or other surface. For the next two centuries after Huygens invents this in the late 1650s, The basic principle of the magic lantern remained relatively unchanged, and this is still the principle by which modern film projectors operate, um, with the exception of digital film projectors. As new, more powerful light sources were invented over the course of the 18th and 19th centuries, the projection distance and clarity of the magic lantern's image also increased. In the late 18th century, a Belgian inventor, Etienne Gaspard Robert, revolutionized the use of the magic lantern by creating something he called a phantasmagorie. Uh, This is where two lanterns are used to project two images onto the same surface. One lantern could be moved by an assistant, while the other remained stationary, giving the illusion that a figure was moving across the scene. Robert's phantasmagorie shows were immensely popular, and depicted demons, apparitions of the dead. Um, One scene actually showed the zombie return of the recently executed Robespierre, terribly exciting, and other supernatural phenomena, as well as uh, comic and dramatic stories. The whole thing was enormously popular, and soon imitators began to spring up and perform their own shows. Um, The motion effect of the Fantasme was somewhat simplified in the 19th century, when some lantern slide makers began to attach two or more layers of glass plates onto a slide. One of the plates would remain stationary, while the other would be moved using a gear-operated turn-and-crank mechanism, allowing for the easy depiction of, say, a ship bobbing on the ocean, or Hansel and Gretel walking through a forest. The cross-application of photography to the Magic Lantern didn't happen until the mid-19th century. Photography was invented in the late 1820s, but not really perfected until the 1830s. Early cameras used paper or silver-colored copper or some other metal uh, as their exposure medium, and it wasn't until the late 1840s that the ability to transfer photographs to glass slides was invented, and Magic Lanterns could now be used to depict real-life scenes rather than painted ones. Over the course of the 19th century, magic lantern shows and various inventions derived from or modifying the lantern became massively popular in both Europe and the United States. These shows would depict both fictional and documentary material. Uh, A typical lantern show might have a set of slides um, showing the progression of a famous story, followed by geographic panoramas on extra-wide slides that could be moved from side to side to indicate the sweep of the vista, uh, followed by pictures of famous cities and landmarks. It's worth noting as well that these lantern shows were also narrated, and the companies that manufactured and sold the lantern slides would sometimes include a script or lecture notes to be read during the presentation. Still, despite some attempts to simulate motion using these glass slides, the medium of the lantern was severely limited in terms of what it could show. And although lantern operators could be exceedingly creative and push the limits of their machines, I mean, people used wheels and pulleys and multiple apertures that allowed for dissolves between images, uh, there was a ceiling to the magic lantern's capabilities. Still, photography for most of the 19th century used paper as its exposure medium. There were some early attempts to use paper as a film medium, uh, most notably by the French physiologist Etienne Jules-Marie and another photographer, uh, Augustin La Prince. but paper was generally far too fragile of a medium to be employed at the speeds necessary to achieve the illusion of motion. All this began to change in 1888, when George Eastman patented the first camera that would use a roll of film made from celluloid. While nitrocellulose materials had been used in photographic development since at least the mid-19th century, it was Eastman's patent for the Kodak camera that revolutionized the market. Celluloid as a photographic medium was both flexible and durable enough to withstand the tension and speed pressures of movie cameras. It was the integral piece of the puzzle. Enter Thomas Edison. Now, in recent years, Edison has become a bit of a controversial figure, particularly in light of his disputes with Nikola Tesla. By the late 1880s, Edison had already made a name for himself with the invention of his phonograph, and he soon turned his attention, and that of his assistant, William Dixon, to the realm of moving picture photography. Edison and Dixon built on the previous work of another photographer, uh, Edward Maybridge, as well as Etienne Marie, who I just mentioned, when they constructed two devices that took advantage of the new Kodak celluloid film, the kinetograph and the kinetoscope. The kinetograph was the camera, and the kinetoscope was the viewing device. One of the innovations Edison and Dixon introduced, after much trial and error and modification, that persists to the present day was to reduce the Kodak film to 35 millimeters, which is about uh, one and a third inches. After working out the kinks in the process, and a great deal of work by Dixon, they finally had a usable market product, and something that actually resembles what we would call a film, and the kinetograph made its debut at the Brooklyn Institute of Arts and Sciences in May of 1893. Kinetograph films, however, were of a very limited duration, uh, less than 30 seconds, meaning about 20 seconds. Because the film was entirely unspooled within the machine, And the Kinetoscope viewing device was not a projector, but a single viewer peep show device uh, that you had to lean over and look down into. Uh, If you've ever played the video game Bioshock Infinite, the Kinetoscope is used quite frequently within that game to indicate backstory. It also didn't rely on a stop-motion shutter mechanism, but was instead a continuous moving reel. Edison's main marketing strategy was to do as he had done with the phonograph. He created viewing parlors, often in combination with his phonograph parlors, where people could come in and pay to go down the row of kinetoscope machines, looking into each one as it played its short scene. The films were shot in a glass-enclosed studio called The Black Maria that Edison had specially built in his New Jersey lab. The early Kinetoscope films depicted a variety of topics—a bodybuilder flexing, a blacksmith at work, a barber giving a man a shave, a boxing match, a reenactment of the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots, and even Annie Oakley performing her gun act. Even before The Machine premiered to the public, though, Edison, ever the scrupulous businessman, had already worked to secure the patent for the kinetograph and the kinetoscope. Yet he didn't secure patent rights outside the United States, and once the technology was debuted in Europe, lots of people seized on the idea and began to manufacture their own versions and knockoffs. Still, many people in both the US and Europe bought Edison's machine and films, and the returns on the investment were, at least initially, well worth the cost. The kinetoscope was a huge hit and popular everywhere, However, Edison's films did not come cheap, and the viewing machine was bulky and could only be viewed by one person at a time. Various inventors, particularly in Europe, tried their hand at improving on Edison's design, but the most successful by far were two brothers, Auguste and Louis Lumière, two brothers who ran a photographic company founded by their father in Lyon, France. In 1895, the brothers filed a patent for their Cinematograph, which was a combination camera developer and projection device. Filming at the all-important 16 frames per second, the Lumiere brothers were able to create films that were of comparable length or longer than that of Edison's, but most importantly, which could utilize the principle of the Magic Lantern and project their images onto a large screen for audience viewing. A typical Lumière show was under half an hour, and consisted of a series of short, under-one-minute clips depicting various scenes and landscapes, the most famous of which was a 45-second clip of workers leaving the Lumière factory in Lyon. While similar competing systems were also being developed around the same time, most notably uh, Paul Roberts' Theatrograph in England and Max Skladanowski's Bioscope in Germany, The Lumiere brothers moved quickly to capitalize on their success and what they were sure was little more than a passing fad. And within a year, they were sending out representatives who they trained in using the cinematograph to far-flung corners of the world, places like Shanghai, St. Petersburg, Bombay, and Rio de Janeiro. These representatives were trained not just in how to project the films but how to shoot film as well, and it was common for them to arrive at a location and shoot familiar landmarks or scenes from the local landscape, which they then incorporated into their local show. One of their agents even put his cinematograph on a gondola in Venice, creating what were some of the first moving shots in cinematic history. Meanwhile, back in America, competition to Edison's Kinetoscope was emerging, particularly from Woodville Otway and Gray Latham, uh, father and his two sons, who had gone into business uh, exhibiting boxing match fights using the Kinetoscope machines. Frustrated with the limited single viewer function of the Kinetoscope, the Lathams set about to create an external projection system, much like the Lumiere brothers had developed. In this task, they were joined by William Dixon, who had left Edison's lab. Together, the Lathams and Dixon created the idoloscope projector, which combined the capabilities of the kinetoscope with the projection technology of the magic lantern. One of the innovations that they made to the mechanism was the addition of a short loop to relieve tension on the film strip. Previously the lack of this simple step had meant that the film that could be stored by an idoloscope or a kinetoscope was severely limited Because the weight of the film rolls would actually tear the film they could only handle about hundred and forty feet to a single roll Though the Latham's fight-watching audience much preferred the projection to the kinetoscope uh, The venture was not terribly successful and on top of this other projection companies began to emerge to challenge their innovation particularly advice known as the fanatoscope The fanatoscope was the creation of an inventor named Charles Francis Jenkins, with backing from his partner, real estate entrepreneur Thomas Armat. Jenkins moved away from the continuous reel of film employed by Edison, Dixon, and the Lathams to a system that would pause the reel at each frame, this is known as intermittent. Uh, After Jenkins and Armat had a falling out following an unsuccessful launch, Armott brought the designs for the Fanatoscope uh, to some Kinetoscope owner operators named Raff and Gammon, who rebranded the device as the Vitoscope. They even got Edison to agree to make films for and manufacture the Vitoscope, but required that it be released under his name, even though he had not invented it. Following a massive marketing push, the Vitoscope had a wide opening in the late spring, early summer of 1896, and Edison's company made numerous films for the device. However, it was not without problems, and here the issue of the current wars comes into play. The vidiscope had been constructed to run on direct current electricity, which Edison championed against the rival alternating current. However, there was no universal standard at the time, and some venues only had alternating current electrical hookups. By November, moreover, Edison's company had begun to produce its own separate projector, called a projectoscope. And yet another competitor had emerged in the early 1890s called the Mutoscope. The result of a collaboration between, yet again, William Dixon and several other men, the Mutoscope, unlike the idoloscope, the vitoscope, the projectoscope, or the fanatoscope, there's way too many scopes, worked by using photographs printed on cards that rolled over in quick succession, like a Rolodex or a flipbook. Eventually, though, they released their own projection device, which worked from 70mm images, double that of the 35mm standard in the kinetoscope and many of its derivatives. Add to this the final arrival of the Lumiere Cinematograph and the Kina Opticon from England, and it becomes clear that, in America at least, the market was flooded with competing projection systems, some of whose films were interchangeable, particularly those based on the Edison kinetoscope, but some were not. So, what was the intended market for all of this sudden influx of projection? The second half of the 19th century was a golden age of popular entertainment in Europe and the Americas. Traveling acting troupes, circuses, vaudeville and music halls all trace their heyday back to this period, and perhaps unsurprisingly, these venues are where the projection systems began to target their sales. For years, vaudeville halls had been experimenting with incorporating magic lantern shows as part of their offerings, and acting troops had used magic lanterns to stage visual effects during plays. Uh, circuses were known to have dedicated black tents for the purpose of projecting magic lantern shows. Given the short length of early films, they could fit quite naturally into the context of a vaudeville review or a circus black tent show. And many of the early demonstrations of these various scopes and graphs and devices were held in these venues, uh, or by store owners who bought and rented the devices for a specific period of time, kind of as a novelty item. And sometimes, of course, they were given showings in large public sort of halls and meeting places. Likewise, the circus and the traveling acting troupe were being replaced by the traveling projectionist, who, like the Lumiere representatives, would travel from town to town, particularly in rural areas, setting up shop for a few days to show his films, and then move on to the next location. In terms of the content of these movies, many of the demonstrations of the devices relied on fairly sort of standard scenes recreations of daily life, landscapes, common everyday situations with a few brief comic or dramatic scenes mixed in. During the Spanish-American War, audiences flocked to these projection shows for the nascent newsreels that began to be created, uh, sometimes actually depicting events in the war, Uh, many times they were recreations or reenactments. By the end of the decade, however, filmmakers were becoming more creative in terms of their artistic content and also form. Perhaps the best example of this is the French magician turned filmmaker Georges Méliès. Méliès made films for the Robert Paul knockoff of the kinetoscope, which he bought in 1896. Uh, the Lumiere brothers actually refused to sell him a cinematograph. And he was entirely experimental in his approach to filmmaking. Like Edison, he constructed a glass-roof studio to house his film production, and within a few years, he was turning out wildly inventive stories, uh, like his most famous work, A Trip to the Moon from 1902, which depicts a team of scientists traveling to the moon by being shot out of a gun in a giant bullet, and they encounter and are captured by some native life on the moon. Perhaps more astonishing, however, is Méliès's mastery of editing, of cutting together shots to create a cohesive, easy-to-understand narrative. Indeed, the advent of editing at the end of the century as a discrete part of the uh, filmmaking process marked a significant turning point in film. Remember that these films are all silent. Synchronous sound isn't used in film until the late 1920s. And explanatory and dialogue intertitles were not widely used in film until about 1904 1905. Now, most early film projections took their cue from the Magic Lantern Show, and the projectionist would often serve as narrator, explaining the action or story, playing out on the screen, or providing context. But as films began to be longer and longer, the role of editing and creating a kind of visual language that would communicate the action and meaning of the story to the audience without the need for an intermediary projectionist became massively important, particularly given the portability of film. Unlike traveling acting troops or vaudeville acts, film was, by its very nature, homogeneous. Uh, audiences viewing the same film in different parts of the country saw the same action, the same story, the same everything films once they had been shot were not subject to illness or inclement weather or bad performances and they were financially therefore far more stable as a source of entertainment than vaudeville and circuses with the proliferation of projection came the almost inevitable emergence of production companies edison moved his own production company into a larger studio in new york where he employed a filmmaker edwin porter who would become the tentpole of that company's production In 1896, Charles Pâté, a purveyor of phonographs in France, had, like Méliès, purchased one of the English kinetograph knockoffs, and he formed his own production company, uh, Pâté Frères, and began churning out films at a shocking rate, up to 50 films a year by 1905. The market was ripe for this new form of entertainment, and production companies began to spring up around the globe. But these films needed venues to be shown. Circuses and vaudeville were, by 1905, in steep decline. Some vaudeville and music halls subsequently underwent renovation to be reopened as movie theaters. However, the majority of film theaters were far smaller, in America in particular, which saw the rise of the Nickelodeon. The first Nickelodeon opened in Pittsburgh in 1905, and it was so-called because it charged a nickel for admission. Between 1905 and 1907, Thousands of Nickelodeons sprung up in the metropolitan centers of the United States. Typically, a Nickelodeon would be a small hall, or more often, a converted storefront, with a screen at one end and the projector at the other. Some Nickelodeons had chairs and were actual theater spaces, others were a standing room or a mix of the two. Therefore, they were sometimes, well actually quite frequently, crowded and uh, poorly ventilated. They also had a reputation for being unsafe because of the cramped, uh, unventilated conditions and the fact that celluloid is highly flammable. Uh, This is a major plot point in the movie Inglorious Bastards. Uh, And there were a rash of movie theaters, Nickelodeons, that would catch on fire. And so, the uh, Nickelodeon as a fire hazard actually becomes a bit of a cliche in the first decade of the 20th century. Although Nickelodeon patrons came from all walks of life, they were largely seen as a form of entertainment for juveniles and the working class. The films that showed in Nickelodeons were still fairly short. Uh, Only a few films broke 20 or 25 minutes of running time, and the convention of showing several short films back-to-back was largely the norm. Usually the film would be accompanied by someone on piano and drums to provide background noise, occasionally a lecturer or someone who was going to explain what the next film was going to be about. Sometimes, while the reel was being changed, there would be a musical interlude, or one of the films being shown uh, was designed to have musical accompaniment. The saturation of Nickelodeons in places like New York was immense. At its height, the city had over 400 and perhaps as many as 800 operating at any given time and in order to accommodate a variety of work schedules, they would often operate for 12 or 13 hours a day. To meet the high demand, Nickelodeons would change out their films several times a week, every week, which meant the need for a continuous influx of new films to keep the audiences returning. Consequently, the number of production companies soared as everyone sought to cash in on this new enterprise. Which brings us back to Thomas Edison. Do not imagine that during all of this he has been standing idly by. His response to the proliferation of projection devices was, usually, to sue, often and loudly, claiming patent violation of his kinetoscope technology. In particular, his main rival was the American Mutoscope and Biograph Company, which used a different kind of feed and a much wider film stock than Edison and his derivative projectors. Competition between the two companies was fierce, and in the first decade of the 20th century, extending to both film production as well as distribution and projection. However, the two managed to bury the hatchet in 1908, and together formed the Motion Picture Patents Company, or MPPC, which sought to control the production and distribution of films in the United States by forcing all production companies to pay the MPPC a base fee in order to have their films distributed in the country. Edison also negotiated an exclusive distribution deal with Eastman Kodak to sell film stock only to the MPPC, though this deal only lasted a couple of years. The MPPC thus sought to regulate the price of films, and also to generally keep out foreign film production companies like Pate from distributing in the United States. Now, as you can imagine, not everyone was totally on board with this deal. And in 1915, following a three-year legal battle, the MPPC was found to be in violation of U.S. antitrust law. By that time, however, the movie industry had begun to radically change. After just a few brief years of massive popularity, Nickelodeons began to decline and close. The reason for this has mostly to do with increased production of full-length or feature films, uh, stretching over an hour to an hour and a half by the production studios. Once the novelty of easy access to motion pictures began to wear off, audiences grew tired of the short documentary and ephemeral nature of Nickelodeon films. They wanted full, developed stories. The studios also began to construct elaborate, dedicated, and comfortable theater spaces against which the Nickelodeons just simply could not survive. The studios themselves were changing as well. They were seeing the emergence of uh, a star culture, which had not existed in early film, but which had existed in things like theater. Uh, And they were forming their own conglomerates and beginning to join together into larger and larger production companies. Uh, These companies were unconnected with the earlier wars over projection systems. Beginning in 1909 and 1910, production companies actually began to move out of New York and the northeast of the United States, out west, Uh, into Southern California, where many found themselves setting up shop for the winter. In Southern California, the light was plentiful, the geography varied, and the temperatures were mild. Particularly, they started to open up studios in the suburbs and towns around Los Angeles, one of which happens to be quite famous. Its name was Hollywood. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week!